The Belly of the Beast with Brendan McCauley, a Go Loud original. In April 1919, Ned Broy and Michael Collins undertook the most daring act of espionage in Irish history. They did so with the full understanding that their captures would mean certain death. It would also lead to the death of the revolution. With all this weight resting on their shoulders, together they enter the belly of the beast. Then there was a heavy knock at the door. My heart nearly stopped. I looked at Collins and Noonan and they stared back at me. What were we going to do? Never was he more exposed or in danger. There comes a time for every revolutionary to decide the value of one's life. The benefits must outweigh the risks. Do possible catastrophic outcomes weigh heavily on the mind? That your death could spark the flame of glory or become another burnt match on the pyre of failed revolutions? Without those few men and women who accepted these risks, these possible rewards or punishments, no revolution would have ever succeeded. Despite the mandate of the Irish electorate in the 1918 elections, when the rebels, represented by the Sinn Féin party, won an astounding 73 of the 105 seats, there was always the possibility that in failure, those who took risk-filled and dangerous chances would be condemned by history as terrorists. Thankfully, some understood the dangers, acknowledged the risks, and were prepared to sacrifice everything for those benefits. At first we walked and we walked and we walked as COVID threatened to envelop us in spring 2020. Lockdown measures meant we couldn't move further than five kilometres from our home. Armed with a fascinating book by Joseph O'Connor called Michael Collins' Dublin, which lists all the houses and locations frequented by Michael Collins during the 1916-1922 period, when he was more or less permanently on the run, I had many fascinating rambles near my home in Terenure. In my mind's eye, I saw him leaping over garden walls in Rathgar or Renala or Rathmines, avoiding capture, as the safe houses he used were being raided by the black and tans and then jumping onto his bicycle to blend into a crowded street to continue the fight for Irish independence. These were the roads that Ned Broy walked for so many years as he made his way between his house in Terenure, which is where I now live, to his work in Dublin Castle. Like everyone else, we watched a lot of Netflix as COVID closed everything and we were housebound and at a loose end. One evening, I happened upon a series called Lupin, a French drama series based on the novels of Maurice Leblanc and created in 1905, but set in contemporary Paris. The show pays homage to Arsène Lupin, an iconic French literary character who is a genius, gentleman, thief and master of disguise. Lupin, often working as a double agent, mysteriously makes his way into the most secure of places, even getting into the headquarters of secret police forces, most notably under the Tsar's command in southern Russia. 
But why bring up Lupin here, you may well be wondering. Well, it just so happens that Ned Broy, during his first meeting with Michael Collins in Foley's house in Cabra in February 1919, mentions that in the course of a long and wide-ranging conversation, the Lupin novels came up. Broy told Collins of his fascination with the central hero, Arsène Lupin, a real man of mystery. The novels were all the rage in the first two decades of the 20th century. Lupin was a French Sherlock Holmes, just as popular as his English counterpart. Ned Broy is amazed to discover that night that Michael Collins was also a fan and very familiar with Lupin's daring deeds. Did they see echoes of themselves in the intrigue and daring of this character? I was captivated by this thought as I watched Lupin's work brought to life again on my TV screen in the shadowy back streets of Paris. Ned Broy, a young man obsessed with athletics and who achieved success and fame at track events, joined the Dublin Metropolitan Police in 1911, primarily to be part of their athletics teams. Over the next three years, on the beat, as a uniformed policeman, he applied for and was successful in being appointed to the infamous G Division, the detective branch which investigated all crimes committed in the city. The G-men who investigated political crimes and monitored anyone suspected with suspicious political activity, especially anyone inclined to challenge the presence of the British Crown in Ireland and in Dublin. Ned Broy was a fast and accurate typist, and this allowed him access to many strands of very sensitive information, despite his junior rank as he typed the daily and weekly reports based on findings from individual colleagues. In March 1917, Ned Broy made the decision to assist Sinn Féin and the volunteers and began passing on important and militarily sensitive information which was to prove vital to the efforts of the Irish independence movement. As Ned Broy's espionage work in Dublin was taking place, the end of World War I was unfolding. On the 11th hour of the 11th day of the 11th month of 1918, David Lord George, the wartime Prime Minister of Britain, knowing that he was hugely unpopular, decided to call a snap general election before demobbed soldiers returned home from the trenches. The general election took place on the 14th of December in Britain and Ireland. In this election, women in Ireland had the right to vote for the first time, along with all men over 21. This was to provide Sinn Féin with a huge advantage over the other nationalistic party, the Irish or Home Rule Party. The Irish party had promised home rule and limited independence for Ireland since the 1880s. It seemed tired and old-fashioned, whereas Sinn Féin was the radical party who had very clear policies regarding independence. Sinn Féin stood for the Republic and the dreams of the heroes of 1916. It had a just and liberal programme for social affairs. Sinn Féin had defeated the British in the conscription campaign and it was led by young, dynamic and dashing men and women. And it was clear that it would not take seats won in the election in a foreign parliament in London, but rather establish a parliament in Ireland. The results of the election were spectacular. Sinn Féin won 73 of the 105 seats. 
about 70% of the vote. True to their word, the newly elected Sinn Féin members of parliament refused to take their seats in a foreign country and set about establishing an Irish assembly, or Dáil Éireann, which met on the 21st of January 1919 in the Mansion House in Dawson Street. Sinn Féin's triumph in 1918 was the result of several factors, above all the change in Irish public opinion that began on a small scale during the Rising and continued rapidly afterwards. And it was also the result of the politicisation of Irish radicalism, the formation of a new mass disciplined Sinn Féin party, disciplined in part because it had many soldiers, many volunteers, many former rebels in Eastwick in its ranks, and it was able to provide a degree of military discipline, which contrasted with the disorganization, the demoralization of the Home Rule Party. And the events of March to May 1918, the conscription crisis, the German plot arrests, was, if you like, the final nail in the coffin of the poor old Home Rule Party. By now, the draggled Redmond was dead. He died in March. Dylan took over for a last few months. But Sinn Féin could and did argue, we are the party. We are the group, along with the volunteers, our very close allies. We saved young Irish men from being sent to fight in France. And this is proved by the fact that the British regarded us as the danger, the threat. They arrested our leaders. Did they arrest any, any home ruler? Not a single one. And poor John Dillon was reduced to complaining the British won't arrest us. On the very same day that the Dáil met, eight members of the 3rd Tipperary Brigade, led by Dan Breen, Sean Tracy and Seamus Robinson, launched a deadly attack on a consignment of Jellignite in transit to a local quarry. Two RIC policemen were killed in the seizure of the explosives. The volunteers in Tipperary had acted on their own initiative, and without approval from headquarters in Dublin. This event at Salahad Beg marks the beginning of the War of Independence. After the 1916 Rising, the big push is to reorganise the volunteers. And then over the course of 1918 and into early 1919, of course, the temperature rises again. And from early 1919, there are references to the Irish Republican Army. So the volunteers is morphing into the Irish Republican Army. Um, And over the course of 1919, that becomes the most common description of the volunteers. They are now the Irish Republican Army. And the idea, of course, is that in conjunction with the political battle for independence, the meeting of the First Doyle at the beginning of 1919, that the army and Sinn Féin are going to work in concert together. So... The Volunteers has to become the Irish Republican Army. It is now the army of the declared Irish Republic and the mandated Irish Republic as far as Sinn Féin is concerned. For Ned Broy, the commencement of the War of Independence made his double life as a desk-bound detective working for the G Division and as a spy who was leaking critical information to the Irish Volunteers much more precarious. He was aware that his activities would certainly lead, at best, to his arrest, dismissal and imprisonment, and at worst, to his execution as a traitor. Ah! Ned Broy acted in a very clandestine manner. He knew more than anyone else how careless talk or seemingly innocent observations by colleagues or members of the public could lead to a jigsaw of intelligence being gathered 
which with one false move could be pierced together to expose his daring and dangerous espionage. He always knew that there were many, especially younger members of the Dublin police force who were sympathetic to the national cause. These men would probably never support violent rebellion, but they could and they did turn a blind eye on occasion. But were there other detectives in the G Division who were as proactively involved with the volunteers as he was? He couldn't be sure. The War of Independence was a guerrilla conflict between the forces of the British state in Ireland and the Irish Republican Army. Michael Collins became the IRA Director of Intelligence for the war and was desperately in need of counterintelligence agents to help fight the Irish cause. For this reason, Ned Roy was brought into Michael Collins's circle of confidants. Both men soon became firm friends. Each had an interest in athletics and each was deeply committed to the Republican cause. There were two other detectives in the G Division who were supplying information to the volunteers and to Michael Collins, namely James McNamara and David Nelligan. Now, remember the first meeting of Roy and Collins in that February evening back in 1919, when they both discovered a mutual love of the fictional French double agent Arsène Lupin? That evening, Collins and Broy discussed other more serious issues too, with the conversation soon turning to the number of Dublin citizens who were still loyal to the British Crown and supplying information to the authorities. Paid informers were frustrating the efforts of the IRA and thwarting attempts to underline the military and political presence of the British in Ireland. Broy was rambling on in considerable detail, telling Collins about the materials in the G Division archives going back as far as the failed Fenian Rebellion of 1867. Collins apparently replied by saying, Knowing what happened to Irish revolutions 52 years ago is interesting, but what I really need to know today is what's going to happen to Irish rebels in the next 24 hours. The Easter Rising and its aftermath had led Broy to the realisation that independence would, in all likelihood, come only through force. Remember, it was back in March 1917 that Broy had made the decision to assist Sinn Féin and the volunteers. Over the following years, his provision of information was to prove vital to the efforts of the independence movement generally, and to Michael Collins specifically. This involvement with Collins began that fateful night in February 1919. Roy would go on to play a central role in providing Collins with interpretations behind the reasoning of various police deployments, movements and general activities, as well as providing him with the method by which police messages could be deciphered, the essential cipher codes. Soon Broy began to meet with senior Republicans in a social manner across the city, bringing crucial information which would aid guerrilla tactics. It seems that remarkable risks were taken by men and women who should not have been seen in each other's company, but they had such affection for each other that they found the temptation of socialising too strong. But Collins, Broy and their company had a daring streak that one suspects was not common. That fateful meeting at the House of the Foley's in Cabra between Broy and Collins was to lead to an audacious plan being hatched which would eventually give Michael Collins, the most wanted man in Ireland, 
access to the most confidential files of the government intelligence services operating within Ireland. At this stage, the secret archives had been moved from their old base in Dublin Castle to a newly built police station, which is now Pier Street Garda Station. They were housed in a large internal safe room and kept strictly under lock and key. From 10 o'clock each night until 6 o'clock in the morning, one detective would be on duty to monitor and decode incoming communications. The unmarried detectives of the Dublin Metropolitan Police all slept upstairs in the police station and were usually in bed by 11pm. Broy's job was to smuggle Michael Collins, the most wanted man in Ireland, into the heart of British intelligence in Ireland and to prevent his capture at all costs. Broy arranged to be the sole detective on duty downstairs on the night shift on the 7th of April. The plan was straightforward. At 12 midnight, Collins would ring Broy to make certain that he was the only detective on duty. Collins was to use the codename Field and Broy's codename was Long. So far, so good. Everything was in place. However, that evening began to unravel for Broy as a series of unforeseen interruptions and distractions occurred. Who can imagine his nervousness as he fought to appear nonchalant with routine police work while all the time waiting for a call from Collins? This was the ultimate game of jeopardy for both of them. To be caught in this endeavour would mean the death sentence for both men. Roy remembered how the evening unfolded. From about 11pm that night, reports began to come in about shootings in Store Street and other areas, and I wondered if fate was going to take a hand in the proceedings. I was working in a semicircular office with many windows and with blinds only over the bottom windows. It became obvious that I could not switch on the electric light in that room in case we were spotted. Secret small archive safe room, which held the books and files where Collins needed to work, had no electric light, and therefore candles would be necessary. While I was thinking this out, and at the same time receiving messages about the Store Street shooting, Sergeant Kerr of the carriage office, who was a single man and sleeping in the building, was in the office talking to me, which was quite a usual practice. When it was nearly 11.30pm, I tried to break off the conversation with Kerr as much as I could, I needed to be ready for the call from Collins. At about 11.45pm, he said he would stay up and give me a hand in view of all the messages that were coming through, but I insisted he leave, and in fact we almost had a row. Eventually though, he left at 11.50pm. At 12 midnight, a silence descended in the office. The phone rang. It was Mick Collins. Mr Field here. Is that Mr Long? I said, yes, long here, bring a candle. The new building at Pier Street had, of course, a brand new set of keys, and there was a master key in case the other keys got lost. I had made myself another master key by filing one of the ordinary keys. That key would be necessary to open the secret archive room where all the intelligence information was stored. In due course, at about 12.15am, Mick Collins arrived accompanied by Sean Noonan. I let them in and showed them the back way and the yard door to Townsend Street in case anything happened and they were discovered, and gave them the lie of the land. No sooner had I done this than a stone came flying in through the window of the room we were in. 
I began to wonder again if the British fates were going to take a hand and wreck our plans. I looked at Collins and Noonan and they stared back at me. What were we going to do? I told them to go into the dark passage and wait near the back door. On looking out into Great Brunswick Street, I saw a British soldier in the custody of a policeman. I opened the door and inquired of the constable as to what was wrong. He said, this fellow is drunk and after throwing a stone in through the window. Then off he went to the police station next door with the fellow. With the coast clear, I went back to Mick and told him what had happened. On inquiring if he had a candle, he said he didn't. He had thought I was having a joke at his expense. Surely the British Empire could supply candles. I had to go to the staff sergeant's stores using my master key to gather candles and matches. Another unexpected delay. With the candles secured, I brought Michael upstairs. Using the master key, I locked the main doors of the dormitories, which were on the top floor, in order to lock the sleeping policeman in and avoid disturbing our madcap adventure. The same key opened the political office and opened the door of the secret small room that contained the top secret intelligence records. Once the lads were safely inside the room, I gave Collins and Noonan the candles, and getting them to close the door tightly, I left them to carry on their investigation and went downstairs. No sooner was I down than there was a heavy knock at the door. My heart nearly stopped. What was this now? Tentatively opening the door, I found the same constable from before, inquiring as to the value of the broken glass. I gave him a rough estimate and he left. Then I ran back upstairs again and told the boys what the noise was about, and then came back down to look after the telephones, etc. At one stage, I heard a commotion from the room upstairs. What in the name of God was happening now, I wondered. Later, I discovered that it was Mick Collins who, on reading the RIC description of his family in West Cork as brainy people of small farming stock, had roared out laughing, forgetting a moment where he was, and that it wasn't a laughing matter at all, and they could have been rumbled by the commotion. Michael stayed in that tiny office, reading and recording the information he needed for planning and intelligence from just after midnight till 5 a.m. the next morning. Never was he more exposed or in danger. Sean Noonan, Michael Collins's accomplice on that fateful night, had fought in the 1916 Rising in the GPO, and he was arrested after the surrender and detained in the Frongok prison camp in Wales. Later, he became heavily involved in the Sinn Féin organisation and worked in Sinn Féin headquarters in Harcourt Street. And he worked very closely with Michael Collins in coordinating the intelligence being gathered by the IRA from friendly sources in the G Division, most notably from Ned Broy. Noonan described the night that he accompanied Collins to the G Division inner sanctum, where these crucial and secret files were stored, but revealing the modus operandi of British intelligence in Ireland. In his witness statement, Noonan tells us, Around March 1919, I was sworn into the IRB and used to meet Michael Collins and others in Vaughan's hotel in Parnell Square. One night in Vaughan's, Collins asked me to stay behind after the others had gone home. Around midnight, he asked me to take a walk with him. After a while, we arrived at Brunswick Street Police Station where Ned Broy was working alone on night duty. Michael Collins explained to me that Broy was going to let us into the G Division files and he was going to examine the police reports and ascertain precisely who among the G-men was doing what work. 
Roy led us up to Inspector McFeely's office and showed us a very large walk-in steel safe. We stayed there until around 5 a.m. This was in April. This night's work was very important work because as a result of the information we gained, warnings could be issued to G-men to stop harassing the volunteers or face the consequence. In the early morning light, I went home to Botanic Road and Collins went to Mountjoy Street. What steeliness and bravery was needed to get into the heart of the British intelligence operation that night? It proved to be a crucial intelligence gathering exercise for Collins, as it gave him an amount of classified information, but more importantly, an insight into the strategies to be used against the volunteers. Broy tells us that Collins wanted to know exactly what information the British had on the IRA. Sinn Féin and other national organisations. Collins wanted to know which of their people were known and still more importantly, who was not known. One of the consequences of Collins's covert visit to the DMP G Division files was a restructuring of the Irish volunteers now that Collins had a greater understanding of how the British intelligence machine operated in Ireland and particularly in Dublin. Previously, the intelligence section of the Irish Volunteers was led by Eamon Duggan, who showed little flair for the role. Collins, for example, was not aware of the correspondence that Broy and McNamara was supplying until after the German plot debacle. From mid-1919, Michael Collins took over the role of head of intelligence and appointed the much more dynamic Liam Tobin as his chief of staff. Ned Broy, in his witness statements, is at pains to say he was always insistent on a two-tier message to Michael Collins regarding intelligence. Firstly, that there were many in the Dublin Metropolitan Police who were sympathetic to the national cause. And for this reason, their support could not be jeopardised by undue attention from the volunteers. Secondly, there were some die-hard loyalists in the police force who could only be defeated by the use of violence. A strategy was created where those belonging to this latter group were sent threatening letters in the name of the Irish Republic, stating that they were to desist from their anti-Irish activities, or they would be shot. And thus the squad, an elite counterintelligence and assassination gang, was created to carry out these shootings. One of the first actions of the squad was to kill Sergeant Patrick Smith in July 1919. Smith, who was one of the detectives in the G Division, went through the gathered prisoners who had been incarcerated in Richmond Barracks after the surrender of Easter 1916. Smith famously abused and humiliated Tom Clark, who was the oldest of the 1916 rebels. A significant figure in the British response to the worsening developments in hostilities was Assistant Commissioner of the Belfast RIC, William Redmond, who was brought to Dublin to rebuild and reform the intelligence gathering detective office in Dublin. Redmond was assassinated in January 1920. Later in March, a former magistrate, Alan Ball, was targeted by the squad. Ball had been getting ever closer to the centre of the network of concealed bank deposit accounts, which housed the Republican loan funds, mainly generated in the United States. Ball was shot while seating on the top of the tram from his home in Monkstown.
The police forces, the RIC and the DMP were under severe pressure and stretched beyond their ability to cope, not least due to the overwhelming pressure and the attacks on isolated rural RIC barracks and intimidation and death threats. The British government were reluctant to use the British army to suppress the rebels, as to do so would acknowledge that Ireland was at war with Britain, which could not be the case, as Ireland was not a foreign power, but rather a constituent part of Britain, such as Finchley or Liverpool. It was decided instead to create a supplementary police force, which would support the RIC and the DMP. Thus, the infamous Black and Tans came into existence and arrived in Ireland in March 1920. The net was closing in on the rebels. However, it was the arrival of another class, the Auxiliaries, which posed the greatest threat to the Irish volunteers. For a long time, the British were very slow in responding to their loss of control in Ireland. And it wasn't really until the summer of 1920 that Lloyd George began a counterattack by introducing a new force, the Black and Tans, followed later by the Auxiliaries. Now, there's a difference between them. The Black and Tans have a dreadful reputation in Ireland, but the Auxiliaries were probably tougher, more brutal. They were all ex-officers in the British Army, so they were officially attached to uh, the police force, but they were not policemen. These were soldiers. Soldiers masquerading as policemen or officially linked to the RIC, but they were soldiers and they were involved in some of the set peace confrontations. It was the auxiliaries who fired on the crowds in Croke Park. It was the auxiliaries who fought the Battle of Kilmichael. They were, uh, along with the British Army, the driving force behind the British counterattack. Uh, and the auxiliaries had, despite the fact that they're less well known now, than the Black and Tans, they probably were a more effective and more ruthless opponent of the IRA than the Black and Tans were. The response to the auxiliaries by the squad was swift and brutal. On Sunday morning, the 21st of November 1920, 14 members of the British security forces were assassinated at various locations where they were living around Dublin city centre. There is no direct evidence that Ned Broy supplied the addresses to the squad, but it's not unreasonable to assume that he had some part in this notorious act. Later that afternoon, a challenge football match between Tipperary and Dublin was taking place in Croke Park. The match was due to throw in at 2.45, but was delayed due to the large crowd attending. A few minutes after the 3.15 start, a combined forces of auxiliaries and British military stormed the stadium, looking for the gunmen of the morning's killings. They opened fire on the panicking crowd, and 14 people were killed. The 21st of November 1920 was to be known forever after as Bloody Sunday. This was the febrile environment in which Ned Roy worked. To the outside world, as a detective, while secretly carrying vital information to the Irish volunteers. While for the most part, Broy worked at his desk, the heart of the G Division headquarters in Great Brunswick Street, he also had valid and legitimate reasons to be all over the city. As we said previously, he was a quartermaster for the barracks, 
and had the responsibility to order and pay for food from various stores around the city. He was also responsible for the printing of court documents required for all the detective work involving what might be called ordinary crimes and had to call to printing presses to proofread documents. However, as the hostilities increased in intensity over the course of 1919, Broy had to be ever more careful. Direct access to Collins was problematic as he was elusive. Broy's main liaison link with Michael Collins was Thomas Gay, the librarian in Dublin City Library in Capel Street. The library was a perfect foil for this intelligence work, and people come and go into this public facility all the time. Gay lived in Hatton Road in Clontarf, where Michael Collins often stayed. As the political temperature soared and tensions grew across the country due to the War of Independence, Ned Broy realised he needed a direct pipeline to Michael Collins because, as he said himself, I needed an immediate way of contacting Mick, not just with some vital piece of information, but to have a brief and urgent discussion as to the means, amongst things, of meeting some serious situation that had arisen. A proposed raid by the auxiliaries on one of the safe houses, for example, which was becoming more and more frequent. Mick gave me the name of a Mr. McMahon who had a business, Knocknagow Dairy, Parnell Street. Not long afterwards, I found it necessary to have an immediate meeting with Mick. I had sized up the position of the shop and noted the escape routes to the rear and sides of the shop, which was doing a busy trade in milk and dairy products. I was surprised that I was not welcomed by Mr. McMahon. Mick told me later that he was very suspicious of me and said I was light on my feet. McMahon agreed to send for Mick and within 20 minutes of my setting out from Great Brunswick Street, Mick had arrived. This was an appalling risk in broad daylight, but the information to be passed on involved planned raids by the auxiliaries. However, Michael must have a great reliance on McMahon to entrust him with such a dangerous task and McMahon, notwithstanding his doubts, had means of finding Michael within minutes. I used McMahon's place on a good many occasions afterwards, but my cop-like appearance no longer held any worries for McMahon. He had a miraculous means of securing the presence of Collins in a matter of minutes, even when things were at their most dangerous. And it was getting increasingly dangerous. In our next episode, Broy's metal is truly tested as the beast begins to seek out any traitors. The auxiliaries raided 21 Dawson Street and confiscated many documents. They knew that the real incriminating stuff were those papers that Ned Broy had typed up. Among the documents were a large number of copies of secret reports supplied by me to Michael Collins. I had the option of socking the two senior officers and trying to shoot my way through the auxiliaries. This podcast is researched, written and presented by me, Brendan McCauley. The podcast is produced and edited by Orn O'Halloran, sound design from Lachlan Hart. The podcast is executive produced by Owen Brennan for Go Loud. Darren Cleary is our commissioning editor. This podcast is brought to you by Go Loud. Don't forget to like, rate and subscribe to the podcast.